0: Okay, let's get started. I have um, Professor Harris with us today. Good morning, Professor Harris, how are you doing? Good morning, Ian, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure having you. Um, Give me a little bit of background on yourself.
1: Oh my goodness, well, I can go back to the last millennium and tell you all about my deprived childhood in Detroit, but I think I'll skip most of that and (laughs) simply say that uh, in the past few years, I've been teaching constitutional law and I'm currently teaching it at a place called Lincoln Memorial University in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, along the way, for almost the last 10 years, I've done a radio show and podcast, a public radio show, uh, called Your Weekly Constitutional. And on that show, we talk about constitutional issues, both current and historical. And uh, you are a listener and, and kindly contacted me recently and uh, gave me some Nice uh, comments on the show and uh, here we are to talk on your podcast.
0: That's right. Listener and a big fan. And um, before you were a constitutional law professor, you also had a private practice. Is that right?
1: That's true. Um, I started out in the Army. Uh, I I owed the Army four years for paying for my college with ROTC. And after that, I worked for a, a large private firm in my home state of Michigan. And then circumstances took my wife and me down to her home state of Florida and so we spent about seven years actually practicing law together uh, at which point I took a teaching position at the University of Florida's law school and that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And you had a big victory on a First Amendment case. Yes we did. Uh, I sometimes say that uh, my wife and I managed to offend just about anybody with any political power uh, in the state of Florida, certainly Northeast Florida. And on one occasion, we represented um, an outsider politician by the name of Buddy Griffin. And this is all public record, so I'm not violating any client confidences. And he was really viciously defamed in a local newspaper. And um, that's a very tough case to to win because uh, as I'm sure you know, the Supreme Court uh, is very protective of speech, especially political speech, especially newspaper coverage of political speech. Uh, but this uh, this newspaper had really crossed the line, and they refused to retract. They refused to apologize. And so we sued them. And about a year later, they cut us a check for a half million dollars.
0: Well, that's impressive. And also, I day.
1: And the funny uh, funny aftermath to thats that is that five minutes after my secretary deposited the check in my attorney trust account, I got a call from the bank manager wanting to take me out to lunch. <laughs> and, <laughs> funny how that works. And I laughed and I said, look, I know why you're calling and I'd be happy to go to lunch with you sometime, but I have to tell you the vast majority of that belongs to my client. And as soon as the check clears, he's going to be taking it. And she said, okay, thanks. Bye. I I, I never got the lunch. Uh, So I had a glimpse, a a glimpse of what the 1% experiences on a daily basis, but I wasn't quite there.
0: There you go. And on your podcast, you've had some impressive guests. You had Peter Sagal. Yes. From, uh, yes. I love that episode. You also had the Uh. author of the, uh, Andrew Jackson papers.
1: Oh yes, we did. He uh, he works right here in Tennessee. He is at the University of Tennessee. He's a historian, and for some Dan Dan Feller, that's his name. Great guy. Uh, he's been on the show at least three times, and over the years, and is very generous with his expertise. And he knows more about Andrew Jackson than just about anybody. One
0: of the most fascinating presidents. Um,
1: really is. Really and is. you.
0: Uh, I felt like you could have done like 10 episodes with that guy. He had just so much knowledge.
1: <laughs> I may very well. In fact, uh, I've already asked Dan if he'd be willing to come in and talk to me again, and he immediately said yes. The only thing that uh, shut us down was this pandemic. We were, were doing our interviews at a studio over at the University of Tennessee's um, uh, radio uh, studio, and it's called WUOT, the great friends of our show. Um, and thanks, to WUOT, for letting us do that. But then everything shut down. So we're waiting until this is over, and then Dan and I are going to go back in the studio.
0: Great. I'm looking forward to that. And you also had um, Tinker from that very important free speech case. Um, I think it's Tinker versus Des Moines.
1: Yeah, Uh, exactly. Um, It's the Tinker versus Des Moines case, often referred to as the black armband case, because a 13-year-old girl named Mary Beth Tinker um, showed up with a black armband on to protest the Vietnam War, and she was uh, punished for it. And uh, she said, this is my free political speech, and you can't do this to me. And the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and guess what? She won. That's right. And so about at the age of 60, decades later, um, she kindly came on the show and told me uh, the story from a perspective I'd never had before. I mean, I teach that case every year, um, and, but it's, you know, it's fairly dry. You're looking at it from the point of the, the opinion of the court. Um, But this really put a human dimension on it. If there's anything that we do on this show, on on my show, excuse me, that is um, completely new, um, at least when we started doing it, is that we often will interview common people uh, who were caught up in one of these major constitutional disputes. And that brings home the point that these are very human issues, and that uh, these people have stories to tell which are anything but dull. I mean, that's really the thing I have to overcome is that people see you know, a, a podcast in constitutional law and they start snoring. Right. Um, but no, it's very dramatic. It's about gay rights, it's about gun rights, it's about uh, little girls who wanna to go, to go to school and get an education and still have their free speech rights protected. So yeah, that was a great interview and I really enjoyed that. Mary Beth think it was very gracious with her time. Yeah, and that case is probably the most important
0: um, free speech case with respect to students free speech. It certainly
1: is. It's certainly the high watermark of protecting student free speech. I'm sorry to say that in the last few decades, the court has inched back in the other direction. It's never overruled a tinker. But on the other hand, it has effectively cut away a lot of those protections. So school principals have a lot more power these days to regulate student speech, and that—that I think is unfortunate.
0: Well, there was some bad facts too. I mean, in Tinker's case, um, I think she had great facts. You know, they were Mm -hmm. protesting the Vietnam War, and it was just a black armband, so it wasn't disrupting um, the school environment. There was a case out of I think it was up in Alaska that had some bad facts and.
1: Oh, they were great facts, Ian, they were <laughs> great facts. In fact, oftentimes you, you get two types of students involved. One, you'll get the Mary Beth thinkers of the world, the very good students or, or the editor of the school paper who's never been in trouble and who writes a fantastic article, but nonetheless offends the principal. That's one type of great student. Up in Alaska, it was a rather different circumstance. Um, I forget the actual name of the case. I should know this off the top of my head, but it's uh, known by everybody by its uh, by what the guy was saying uh, he was at a school um observance he was released from school to go watch the olympic uh, torch go through the town in, in a parade you know the runner comes through holding the torch and all the school children are lined up um and so he decided he was going to unfurl a banner and it said bong hits for jesus <laughs> <laughs> what the heck does that mean yeah and, and he was just a kid having fun. And that's the other type of person you get. And those are, from a legal perspective, the the bad facts. Those are the less defensible ones. Right. Um, You also have students uh, make uh, double entendres during speeches they're making to running for student counsel. I mean, those are my type of guys. I mean, that's the sort of kid I was in in high school um, pushing the limits. Um, But those are not as good facts. You're right. And it's been some of those cases where the Supreme Court has retreated a bit on its protection of student speech. And that's
0: understandable. But then I also think about that quote from uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, freedom for the thought we hate. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I I guess it's important to keep that in mind as well.
1: Look, you don't have to protect popular speech, do you? No. I mean, if you walk out the door and you say nice things to everybody and it's all rainbows and (laughs) unicorns, no one's ever gonna arrest you for that. Um, You get in trouble when you say things that people find offensive or even deeply offensive. And um, it's that kind of speech which is protected, and especially if it involves things like religion or politics, very, very well uh, protected.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, let's just get into the uh, lockdown laws and the constitutional issues surrounding the government lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. we've had one case go all the way up to the Supreme Court, and that involved a church in Chula Vista, California. And then we had um, a really interesting decision from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And um, those were, in my eyes, the the two main uh, legal decisions that that we can analyze. We on the same page so far?
1: Absolutely. But you're gonna have to remind me of the facts in those two cases, because though I'm aware of them, I don't off the top of my head recall what exactly the issues were there.
0: Yeah, I I mean, let's start with uh, the case that went up to the Supreme Court. Um, It started with a a church in Chula Vista, California, that was challenging um, Governor Newsom's ban on religious gathering. Um, What's interesting to me is when it first started, Newsom had a complete ban, I believe, um, but by the time it went up to the Supreme court, it was more, it was a more practical um, restriction and the restriction that the Supreme court considered was whether governor Newsom's um, he put a, a 25% capacity or no more than 100 people at a church service, right. whether that was constitutional and in a, in a five to four decision. The Supreme Court said, that's yeah, right. that's fine. Governor Newsom can do that. Yep. Um, and then yep, there I remember was, that. Yeah. And
1: and they quoted, you know, the the Jacobson case, Jacobson versus- Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about Chula Vista because it's representative of a lot of these things. As you say, we often refer to these measures as lockdowns. Um, and that's one way to look at it. Of course, we also have lots of cancer, controversy over mask requirements. Uh, here in East Tennessee, where I teach that seems to be the thing that's riling people up the most. But early on, especially as the various governments were trying to figure out how to combat this pandemic. Uh, one thing they pretty much all decided on is they didn't want large gatherings. Um, and that was probably a, a wise decision early on. Uh, because many of those gatherings became what we call super spreader events. And perhaps even especially church services are are super spreader events, because think of what you do in church. You sing. okay? so you're projecting your voice. And and we know that that's how COVID spreads now. I mean, people thought it did early on. Now it's pretty much been confirmed. That's one of the major ways you, you transmit it rather than from surfaces and things. That's why we're not cleaning all of our surfaces quite as maniacally these days. And we're focused more on things like masks. Um, but churches are a, a particular place. Um, think of the other things you do um, in the Protestant church uh, we share the peace as we say, which means you shake hands with people. Other churches are more demonstrative they'll go start hugging each other um, then the choir comes in and they're all singing in your direction and if you're sitting up in the front, you're in what you call the spit zone you're going to get something on you um, and then of course, uh, if you do communion then you're going to be common it's a common practice to drink from the same chalice I mean it's almost designed to spread viruses. And so it's understandable that any state, including California, might decide to focus on that as a particularly dangerous event. But here's the problem uh, The First Amendment protects not only speech, but it protects something called the free exercise of religion. And all those practices I, I told you about are the exercise of religion and so you have to be especially careful not to mistreat that not to target religion um, and it starts to look like you're doing exactly that if you have special rules for churches as opposed to gathering at Walmart or gathering in the at the Sonic drive-in uh, or wherever else you might gather at the grocery or
0: protesting
1: store, or even protesting exactly right um, and so then you can't you have contrast and someone will say well if, you, if are you saying this is less essential for me to go to church than it is for these people to protest or these people to go to the liquor store or whatever it is then it gets the court's attention now ultimately in chula vista the supreme court did not agree that the uh, the particular state action uh, in question was unconstitutional but that's why the court is concerned about these things it's not just speech it's free exercise of religion and You can go too far, let let me back up. Um, That's the essential problem with these sorts of restrictions. Why do we even think we have the power to put such restrictions on people, to lock them down as you say? Well, that is something from a different angle that we come to. Um, We're no longer talking about individual rights in the first instance, but the power of the government. And every state, including California, possesses, as an inherent part of its sovereignty, something called the police power, which is not really carefully defined, but probably includes taking whatever action is necessary to protect the health and welfare of the people of that state. And in 1905, the Supreme Court um, decided a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. A fellow up in Massachusetts objected to um, uh, the state requirement that everybody get uh, inoculated, vaccinated for smallpox and that's a pretty intrusive thing. I mean, lockdown oh, yeah. is one thing, but I mean, think of the state basically saying you got to let somebody stick a needle in your arm and inject you with something that maybe you don't want in there.
0: And that's what's and frustrating And that was me. okay. Yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but that case is so widely cited and it has terrible
1: facts. <laughs> well, the facts in the case did I mean, as you know, Ian, uh, you No no case is perfect. Okay, Mary Beth Tinker might be the closest to a perfect set of facts that's out there. Um, uh, DC versus Heller, the Second Amendment case, is similar because that was one of the most sympathetic plaintiffs that one could get. Um, But with those few exceptions and and a handful of others, it's very hard to get a clean case. And so, if you want to go, you know, dig way down into the facts, and and Jacobson, this guy might very well have had some valid reasons for not getting vaccinated. I think he'd been vaccinated once before, back in Europe, and he said he'd had a bad reaction then, so he didn't need the vaccination anymore. He was at risk. Um, The court, the Supreme Court, didn't actually force him to get vaccinated. It simply said the state had the power to impose such a requirement um, as a general matter, as long as it had exceptions uh for cases of real medical need so whether jacobson actually ever got his vaccination or not i don't know um yeah but I, the court I think said instead, the state had the power
0: yeah they fined him five dollars which mm-hmm. was probably a lot of money back then right a lot I mean, more
1: t- than it is now
0: <laughs> yeah so that's a good point i mean they weren't sticking a needle in his arm they were they were just finding him the five dollars but um I think if you ask most people, you know, if if you want the government compelling vaccinations, um, they would say no.
1: (laughs) I understand that. And I certainly, certainly understand that. And I I know a lot of people who are very wary of vaccinations. um, But I think when push comes to shove, let's say that there was a really widespread anti-vaxxer movement, more so than we have now. Uh, Let's say in a year we get an effective um, vaccine for COVID-19 and all the states, all 50 of them, say, okay, everyone's required to get this vaccination. And let's say that more than half of the people won't roll up their arms and do it. Well, now you've got a real conflict. And the Supreme Court might be asked in that circumstance, does the state of California, for example, have the power to make people go and get these vaccinations? And I think consistent with Jacobson, the Supreme Court would say, yes, it does. Well, then what happens if they don't? Well, California would probably have some sort of punishment. Uh, You can't put your kids in school, um, public school, uh, or maybe you have to pay a fine, uh, or maybe there's a, a fee or something. And if people really just completely refuse to comply, no matter how much pressure California put on them, you might get to the point where California is bringing people in in handcuffs and inoculating them. I sure Uh, hope not. Oh, I don't think that was going to happen. But I mean, theoretically, that's the ultimate test, isn't it? I mean, and would the Supreme Court bless that? I don't know. I do know that um, right near where I am in a small town, I think it's Whitesburg, Kentucky, um, or or nearby in eastern Kentucky, you can find pictures online of um, police officers uh, holding guns on people and making them get vaccinated. Now, that was a different time. And smallpox is a deadly disease. I mean, it, I mean much more so than than COVID-19. It was. It's been a scourge for thousands of years. Yeah, a terrible, terrible disease. So those facts might be different. But that was sort of the ultimate test, and that's the kind of stuff that was going on back in the early 20th century. People were being rounded up and forced to get vaccinated.
0: Yeah, and, and I get it if the government um, says, you know, you can't send your, your kids to public school if they don't have this vaccination, um, but that's why you have the right to, you know, homeschool, um, and, you know, you should have that, you know, personal medical right to say, I don't want um, somebody shooting shoot me up with a needle with who knows what's in it, you know?
1: <laughs> well, you do actually, Ian, you do have that right at least if you can show that there's a particular medical risk for you. Um, if you can, you know, I'm, I've am i got a particular disease, I've got a particular susceptibility, I'm allergic to whatever medium they use in this vaccine, so don't vaccinate me. Um, it gets much more difficult when it's simply an objection based upon um, your reluctance to be vaccinated. You know, I just don't think the risk is appropriate because The epidemiologist will tell you that you're taking one for the team, that it's not just protecting you, it's protecting everyone around you. And in some sense, it's your civic duty to go out and get the needle in the arm. That's not acceptable to a lot of people. And of course, we've all heard about herd immunity. We don't know how much um, herd immunity is necessary before you can actually control the scourge. But most of the estimates I've heard are around 60, 70%. That means that that level of, of, of immunity has to exist to get to the point where the outbreaks are, are controlled enough that you can stamp them out as they occur. Um, so that could be a real conflict. And by and large, the court has said that the state can force you, but we've never actually considered whether they can go out and strap you down and force the needle into your arm. And I hope we never right. get to that point. Me
0: too. And yeah. And again, in the Jacobson case, I think they, expressly said that, they said, you know, Mr. Jacobson wasn't forcibly injected with the vaccine, rather, he was just fined the $5.
1: I think they took comfort from that.
0: Yeah, I think they did, too. Um,
1: Think about it. Whenever the government does something coercive to you, it it makes you pay taxes, for example. Well, what happens if you don't pay taxes? Well, you have to pay a penalty or you have to pay interest. Um, But that's generally all that's going to happen to you. Or maybe you have to get on a payment plan. Or maybe if you don't pay, they come and garnish your wages or take your house or whatever they're going to do to get that money. But it's only in really extreme circumstances that they actually come out to your house and arrest you and put you in prison uh, if you've committed some sort of fraud or something. Um, So there's a whole range of things that the government's going to do. And to government's credit, for the most part, they try to start with the least level of coercion and, and move up the ladder. And that's what I've been referring to, is that you know, Jacobson leaves open the door to strapping people down and forcing them. And in, in the event of a deadly enough a pandemic with um, enough resistance to vaccination, probably they would go that far. But I think they'd be extremely mm-hmm. reluctant to. And moreover, I don't think that we'd ever get to that point.
0: Yeah. And the recent Supreme Court decision, this case out of Chula Vista, I mean, that restriction that they upheld was, it seems reasonable to me. Um, what bothered me was at the beginning, the the complete shutdown, you know, absolutely, you can't go to church. Well, can't can't we get creative? Can't you go outside? Can't you, you know, socially distance or, um, you know, it seems like there's things we can do. We can be flexible. Um, and so I, I would be interested to, to know what the Supreme Court would rule if, if that case would have been, brought to the supreme court earlier with uh with the complete shutdown on religious services
1: oh i suspect it would have been declared unconstitutional and for the very reasons you just cited ian um it's not often mentioned but uh the government cannot be arbitrary and capricious that's the the magic buzz phrase uh, i less like to think of it the government can't do stupid stuff okay if something the government's doing is just stupid um, well then the government's going to be and, and it infringes on somebody's right in this case, the right of liberty to freely associate, the um, freely practice religion, freely speak. I mean, there's a host of constitutional issues here. And if the government's just stupidly uh, restricting your uh, constitutional rights, the government's going to lose. We had a case like that, a couple of cases like that, in um, Tennessee and Kentucky, one down in Chattanooga and one, I think, in Louisville. And the one in Louisville, if I recall correctly, um, <laughs> involved drive-in church. Um, Okay, church said, okay, we can't have a gathering of more than how many people, 10, 25, 50, whatever it is. We've got a bigger congregation. So what about this? We're going to get ourselves a low-power FM transmitter. We're going to put it up on the church steps, on the front steps. And we're going to invite everybody to drive into the parking lot and tune into that channel so they can watch the preacher and they can listen on their car radios. That's eminently reasonable. Right. I mean, this is a church that's trying to comply with public health regulations, but still has figured out a way to freely exercise its religion. And that was something that the government wasn't going to let them do. And that just, boy, did they get slapped down on that one. And and, and in fact, the court went through exactly the analysis. It said on the very day that you weren't allowing these people to drive in and park in their church parking lot, uh, right down the street, people were doing the same thing at the Sonic drive-in.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or, or at
1: the Walmart, right? I mean, so you can't single out religion. Uh, even, uh, you would have to make a really strong case that a particular religious service was destined to be a super spreader event. Let's just pause it for a moment. Uh, a church where it is a part of the sacrament and it's an essential part of the service that everybody come together in a big huddle for a group hug and that this group hug goes on through the singing of a specified hymn, and the hymn takes about three minutes to sing, okay? If the church actually was gonna do that, then I think government could make an argument that it could restrict them. Now, it would have to satisfy something called strict scrutiny, which has two requirements. First of all, a compelling reason. That's easy. We're trying to stop the spread of this deadly disease. Secondly, is it the least restrictive means? Well. If In my hypo, it probably would be, because if you let the church meet, they're going to get into a big huddle, and they're all going to infect each other. But other churches, like the one with the drive-in service, say, well, we can accommodate this, and we can still have church, just in a different way. And that's when government can't come in and and discriminate against them.
0: Yeah, and and I think the church had a powerful argument that... um, basically the government was not acting in a content neutral way meaning they're allowing these mass protests and some of them were it, the ironic thing was um there was another church in fresno um after the the governor newsom's restriction they went out and protested and
1: <laughs> and they so, could do that and they could do that <laughs> they could do that but could, okay i will play devil's advocate in here i will say that I think there is a scientific argument that the state probably could bring into the case to say on the one hand, church services indoors, super spreader for all the reasons we've talked about. Um, protests, especially if people have masks on and, and many people do wear masks, some don't, um, are, have been shown to be far less dangerous. And apparently that's because when you go outdoors, the wind just blows your spit droplets away. I, I, it's kind of gross to talk about, but I think that the way people get infected is they're standing close to each other for extended periods and having a conversation, one of them just spitting on the other. <laughs> uh, and the other one's breathing in that person's droplets. And my understanding is that you have to have a certain amount of virus exchange before you're going to get a serious infection. So that makes sense. You know, in church, we do that sort of thing. But out on the streets, we're probably not doing that thing. And even if we're standing a few feet apart and talking, the wind is blowing the spit away. Uh, so you could make an argument that that is a rational distinction, but at first glance, it sure looks like they're discriminating against religion, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, no, that's a good point. In um, doing the research, um, it, it was interesting to me how the government has upheld these state quarantine laws as well. Um, I think Alexander Hamilton even got quarantined in Albany, New York uh, when he <laughs> left Philadelphia. So they were they were applying it even handedly um, and you do have a fundamental right to interstate travel is that correct uh, yes you do yeah so um, there is a long history of the courts deferring to the state's police powers as you said
1: out uh, in in the area of public health you've probably got the most powerful inherent power of any constitutional power that anybody exercises in this country uh the police power is not mentioned in the united states constitution it the words don't exist because they simply assumed it i mean our 13 original states started out as pretty much independent sovereign nations that were in a loose confederation for the first 11 years of our existence and so they had all the powers of any sovereign government so the starting point with a state when you now analyze whether a state can do this or not is that, yeah, they can do it unless there's some reason they can't do it. Um, Contrast it with the national government, which is a government of limited enumerated powers, where the default position is, show me why you can do that, Feds. That's why the police power resides within the state. And that's why, at least when it comes to public health, the courts have always broadly supported uh, the states in the the exercise of that power. It even goes back before uh, we had our national union, there were outbreaks of yellow fever back in oh, yeah. the 1600s, the 1700s, and it was very common back then, uh, well, first of all, for people just to run away, um, which can be good or bad, depending on whether you're spreading uh, the disease, um, but apparently that was spread by mosquitoes, especially, and so if you got away from an area where there were lots of mosquitoes, you probably were going to be safe, and the, and if you did get sick, the city or the the county or the state would quarantine you. And so this has been going on since time immemorial.
0: Yeah, that was interesting to me um, to learn the history about that. I think what really bothers me, too, is this term essential versus non-essential. It feels oh, like yeah. the, the government is picking the winners and losers. You know, in all these cases that you, you read from our past, it's sort of the government is applying these rules even-handedly. And um, now they're saying, okay, you can stay open and you can't stay open. And there's a lot of gray area. I mean, cannabis yep. dispensaries out here in California were allowed to stay open. Um,
1: <laughs> as That's not controversial, is it?
0: <laughs> not here. Um, yeah. And, you know, pet grooming shops were allowed to stay open. And so you can understand the frustration from from some of these churches. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, other businesses, too, like hair salons, barber shops, you know, maybe they could have got creative, too, and done some stuff outside. The, the complete I've shutdown. Seen Barbara,
1: I've seen barbers sitting outside. They bring their chair out in the front on, on the sidewalk, and they cut hair.
0: Yeah, and they're wearing um, masks and, and stuff. And they're wearing
1: masks. I actually thought about if, if my barber did that, I probably would get a haircut. I haven't had a haircut in three weeks, except what I've done myself, and it's pretty bad. Um, I'm glad I'm glad this is an audio podcast and not a video. <laughs> <laughs> but you're absolutely right, I mean, it's very, very troublesome to pick and choose winners and losers. But let's think about this. The most effective way, the epidemiologists tell us, is to have a complete Italy-styled uh, shutdown, which seems to have worked. I mean, Italy was hit really, really badly early on. Um, uh, apparently, a bunch of Chinese uh, workers were there and went to China, picked it up, came back and just boom, it was all over this part of Italy. And they just said, OK, everybody's staying home. And literally, you needed a permission slip uh, to be out on the street. And you could only leave your house to pick up groceries or go to a medical appointment, a very, very restricted um, list. And people complied with us. And ultimately, it was very effective. And they're actually doing much better in that part of Italy now than we are in this country. Um, So they basically said nothing. I mean, they picked the only winners they picked in that case were something that pretty much everybody would would agree was winner. You have to have food, you have to have medical attention. Um, Okay, that's relatively easy if you're really gonna be consistent and and restrict everything. But of course, we know that there's always pressure to go the other way, whether it's for religious reasons or whether it's for business reasons. And by the way, I sympathize with business owners and, and workers who are suffering now. Okay, well then, we start picking. Okay, well, we'll let the grocery workers go in, because everybody needs food. Okay, we'll let the pharmacy workers go in, because they need their drugs. Um, You go much beyond that, and now you have to have some other reason. Why do we let a restaurant open? People don't have to eat at restaurants, but we want to not impact the economy as much as possible. We want the economy to, to survive. So, okay, we'll make an exception for restaurants under these circumstances. Oh, well, if you're gonna let restaurants open, then why not bars? Oh, well, okay, we'll let bars open too, um, especially if they have outdoor seating. Um, And all of a sudden, because of all the economic pressure, you start making exceptions and come up with these designations about what's an essential service, and the further afield you go from feeding people and giving them medical attention, the more room there is for debate. And so I understand uh, the, the church in Kentucky saying, why do you let them get together at Walmart, but not here? Why do you let them go to the liquor store, but not here? Yeah. You made a, you made a funny point, Ian, but I know I'm talking a lot, but before you let me go, you joke that um, in California, marijuana dispensaries are considered necessary. Um, here in Tennessee, same thing with liquor stores. And that's really yeah. a sore point for a lot of religious people, <laughs> sure, especially. Sure. If you're going to let all the drunks and all the potheads go get their <laughs> stuff. That's more important, right? Yeah. Well, I actually, I can make an argument. If I represented a local government that had allowed, allowed that, I would make the following argument. We know that people have lots of uh, alcohol dependency. Uh, they might not be alcoholics, but they still, they drink too much. And we also know that if we simply cut off their supply all at once, bad things will happen to them and that's not wise to do so even though we don't condone necessarily problem drinking and we wish they would address it it would be counterproductive to cut off their supply and just like in prohibition they'd find a way to get oh, yeah. their their liquor you can make a similar argument maybe even maybe even a more valid argument with marijuana i know there's a continuing debate but at least in theory marijuana does help some medical conditions sure and and you know, now it's easier to justify leaving a dispensary open, especially if it's a medical dispensary. Right. So, you see, the problem is as soon as you start making exceptions, and somebody else down the street wants an exception.
0: Yeah. Listen, I love my craft beer, so I don't want them That's to It's huh? <laughs> <That's> pretty essential,
1: huh? It's pretty essential. But, yeah, I mean,
0: it's just, there's such a gray area. And, um, I mean, I think if we just would have done the face mask right away, I have no problem wearing the face mask. Um, I, I kind of analogize with my friends it's like when you go over to somebody's house and they ask you to take your shoes off um most people don't mind that i mean certainly some people may have some medical condition where they can't wear the face mask but i think if we, we would have just done the face mask and the social distancing we could have avoided a lot of these shutdowns and economic um, disaster that followed
1: I, I you may be right i don't know not being an epidemiologist um Most of what I've heard is that um, the most effective thing to do is to do everything you can, whether it's isolation or quarantine or masks or social distancing or whatever, and to really take your medicine all at once. And then, with maybe a month, you can get it to the point where you can control it. I mean, that's what they will tell you. But to the extent you don't do that, then you're going to allow some what they call community spread. And now, you get in a situation like we seem to be here in the United States. We still have this very, very high death toll.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: we're getting close to 200,000 people who are going to die. And that's, I mean, yeah, there are all sorts of comparisons out there. You know, there's more than in the Civil War. It's more than, well, not in the Civil War, but more than in, you know, World War One. more than in Vietnam by a factor of oh, yeah. these two. Um, these are catastrophes happening um, all around us. And arguably, it's because we've never really taken our medicine all at once. You know, we've had, half measures, and we've had measures that people resist for various reasons, and isn't it interesting that in those areas that have embraced these measures, the uh, the infection rate does seem to be going down or leveling off? No, that's
0: true. And, you know, the listeners to my podcast know that, you know, I'm not trying to minimize um, the significance of COVID-19. My father's a, a Vietnam veteran, and I think it's 58,000 uh, brave Americans. 58,000,
1: yeah. So, so we're about double at three times that now.
0: Yeah. Three, almost four times now. So, oh, yeah. so yeah, it is, it is serious. Um, I, I just, there, there are things that, that bug me. And one of the things is when I turn on the, the news and people are, you know, advocating for shutdown, 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 well, it's easy for them. They're still getting a paycheck.
1: Yep. <laughs> I'm, I am very much aware of that. I work for a, a large university that has, you know, very good funding. Um, and uh, my law school is actually seeing record enrollment this year, strangely. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so, you know, in terms of cash flow for me and to support my salary, um, I'm in pretty good shape, and I've never missed a paycheck, and I can, I can afford to work, and furthermore, my job allows me to work from home, except when I'm, even sometimes when I am teaching classes, I teach them online. So I'm in a really good position, and so it's very easy for me to say, shut everything down, because I, I can shut down easily. And still get paid. Yeah, what about here. the waitress who can't do yeah, that? What about exactly. people who can't pay their rent? What about business owners who have tried and tried and tried and are now going to have to go bankrupt? I mean, I understand those things and I feel terrible about that. Um, but the question, the constitu- these are policy issues. The, the constitutional question is what is the power of government? And by and large, I think Jacobson tells us that the government does have the power to do these things. Now, whether we've done exercise that power wisely or not, That's an open question.
0: Yeah, fair point. One thing um, that perplexed me in reading this recent Supreme Court decision is they talk about um, religious employers as a high-risk workplace. And I never really thought of a a church as a workplace, especially because I think there was another um, decision this term out of the Supreme Court that that granted some exceptions for religious employers.
1: So that statement
0: really confused me.
1: The exception you're talking about is a so-called ministerial exception. And so um, if you work for a church or a church-related entity like a religious school, um, you don't have all the labor law protections that you might have someplace else. For example, maybe a state uh, protects you against discrimination uh, if you're gay um, or if you're married to another person of the same sex. Um, But then the religious school finds out about it and fires you and says it's inconsistent with their religious beliefs. Well, by and large, church and church-related uh, religious institutions, mosque or a temple or whatever, <clears throat> can do that as long as the particular employee has some role to play in propagating the doctrine. So certainly a preacher, a minister, a priest, a rabbi, I mean, those are the, they're the ones who are telling people about the doctrine and that in their opinion, certain things are unacceptable. Um, teachers arguably are as well but is a math teacher or is, uh, if it's a religious studies teacher or maybe a history teacher, you can, you can slice and dice these things. Um, what the court did is it made it much easier for religious institutions to claim the ministerial exception. Um, I don't think it's quite as easy as saying the janitor um, has to comply with your religious doctrine and with all due respect to custodians who are essential workers and who are doing marvelous things for all of us during this pandemic, but their job typically is not associated with uh, propagating religious doctrine. So, or maybe the guy who uh, works in the cafeteria, okay? those it's a harder case for them to make, but the recent Supreme Court decision about this seemed to open the door even to the janitors and to the food workers. And that's what people are concerned about. But that's one area that doesn't really involve public health. Um, the uh, the Chula Vista decision you're referring to, you know. Calling a church a high-risk circumstance seems offensive at first glance, doesn't it? Yeah. Where where are you safer than in church? Um, And where do you feel more at home? And it's a very, just your spiritual home. How can you call this dangerous? Well, for the reasons we've discussed, because people are getting together and hugging each other and singing and reciting prayers, and they're doing it for at least an hour, I'm I go to Methodist services. The most of what I've been to have been Methodist and we tend to get out within an hour. Uh, I've been to some masses that go on well beyond that. And then I have been to a few services by some more um, charismatic people. I think I didn't get out of there in less than three hours. Oh my goodness. And much, of, much of it was singing. Okay. Lots of singing and dancing around and all that sort of stuff. And that that's what makes it a, a difficult work environment. What if I'm the guy who, um, you know, has to, it was one of the ushers. Maybe I'm employed there. Maybe I'm uh, the the music minister. I mean, people do depend upon these institutions, these religious institutions for their livelihood and to a great extent, don't have a choice in being there. So I think that's what the court was was referring to when they call them high risk.
0: Yeah, good point. I also have a question. This is a procedural question. Um, The case out of Wisconsin where the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down the governor's lockdown restrictions um they said they couldn't appeal that to the supreme court
1: that's very interesting the reason i think for that is that they were arguing over the wisconsin constitution got it okay that makes sense yeah every state uh, this is something we often forget is that every state has its own constitution and most of them are patterned after the u.s constitution um, some major exceptions being the, the first 13 states who kind of figured it out on their own. In fact, I think Massachusetts is still largely operating under the constitution that John Adams wrote for them. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's not necessarily patterned on the U.S. Constitution, which came later, but they have a lot of commonality. And so, lots and lots of states, maybe all of them, uh, have a bill of rights. And in that bill of rights, you have protections on your personal liberty, uh, protections on your speech. And on your religious exercise. And if the Wisconsin case, which I believe it was, was brought entirely under the Wisconsin Constitution, well, the ultimate authority of the Wisconsin interpretation of the Wisconsin Constitution is the Wisconsin Supreme Court.
0: The last thing about this Chula Vista Supreme Court case, this quote just really bothers me, too. And and it was um, it came out of the Ninth Circuit, too. I think the judge... Um, it was a i forget the name of the judge that the judge on the ninth circuit was quoting i think it was jackson judge jackson who said we don't want to convert the bill of rights into a suicide pact
1: ah i've heard that on many many different occasions it's a very famous quote and i think you may be right that it was justice robert jackson who said robert that robert jackson
0: thank you yeah and
1: who was um it was check me on that because i may be wrong i'm not looking at the opinion and i'm not looking at justice jackson's uh, biography right here But he was known as one of the most eloquent writers uh, ever in the history of the Supreme Court, and he's written a number of very stirring clauses, so it would not surprise me at all if it were Justice Jackson who said that. It's typically quoted in the context of national security cases, um, where someone's claiming a First Amendment to uh, spread some information that puts the nation at peril. And so the, uh, the court will oftentimes in national security circumstances uphold the government's restrictions. And I think in one of those cases, Jackson famously said, you know, we're not going to, the constitution doesn't require us to protect free speech or even free exercise of religion or anything else to the point where it puts the whole nation in danger.
0: That's what yeah, he are about. It's a slippery slope to me. Uh, it I, is. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just, that, that quote, and then didn't Lincoln say something to that effect too during the civil war?
1: Oh, that's essentially a Lincoln's entire approach to the Constitution. Right. Um, I have the honor of teaching at a place called Lincoln Memorial University. And I've been there about four years. And um, I suggested to the dean that it was a shame to have a law school at a place called Lincoln Memorial that did not have um, a law seminar devoted to Lincoln and specifically his constitutional uh, actions or unconstitutional actions during the civil war. And, uh, he had the Dean immediately agreed. So I designed this course and I've taught it two or three times now over the past couple of years. And the more I read about Lincoln, the more I realize that this guy was really pushing the envelope. This guy was really, really pushing the envelope on presidential powers. I mean, you know, abolishing habeas corpus.
0: Yeah. um, Well, he had good reason. Um, I think everyone would agree with that.
1: (laughs) Well, they don't actually. That was his rationale. I mean, it was a Justice Jackson type rationale. I mean, I'm here. I'm defending the country. Um, You know, Washington, D.C. could be surrounded by rebels. He was almost assassinated on his way to take office for his first term. Wow. Um, There was a plot to assassinate him. Um, And so he was in great peril. The nation was in great peril. And that's how he justified doing a lot of these things. But as you point out, Ian, where does it end? Okay. In the case of Lincoln, there was an end, a natural end because the war was over. Okay. Mm -hmm. We can have a divide. In the modern era, we've been at war since 1941. I mean, people think World War II ended in 1945. Well, maybe formally. Okay. But since that time, the United States has had military bases all around the world. And on any given day, U.S. soldiers and sailors and airmen are in danger and might exchange fire with the enemy. And Frequently, it's, it's flared up. Uh, we haven't had a declared war since 1945, but we have had a, an almost continuous state of warfare. And so presidents have increasingly relied upon that national security doctrine to do stuff that by golly is pretty scary sometimes, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. No, this has been a fascinating discussion on the, uh, lockdown laws. Um, I want to take this last segment to to ask you some questions after listening to your podcast. What exactly is the standard of review for the second amendment?
1: Boy, if I could answer that, I would probably get a job at Harvard law school, Um, (laughs) or maybe I'd be appointed to the Supreme court. It's so confusing to me. It's very, very confusing. Um, to go back a little bit, the Second Amendment reads, and I believe this is verbatim, um, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And there had been an ongoing debate since 1791 when that was ratified as to whether this was about militias or whether this was about individual right. As of 1939, the court in um, in the, K, the Miller case um, uh, suggested very strongly that the Second Amendment was about militias and therefore there was no individual right. That's what I grew up in. I mean, I went to law school in the 80s and we were basically told the Second Amendment is dead letter law because we no longer have citizen militias. And so who cares? That's kind of like the Third Amendment saying you can't uh, put redcoats in people's houses. I mean, we don't have that issue anymore either. Uh, But no, no, Um, people disagreed strongly. And in 2008, um, a fellow by the name of Dick Heller, whom I alluded to earlier as being the perfect plaintiff, was a member of the Capitol Police Force who carried a gun on the job. And his job, get this, was to protect federal judges. Oh, wow. Um, he lived in the district, and the district had very, very restrictive uh, laws. He applied for a permit to get a handgun for his uh, for his home to protect his family, and he was denied. And so that gave him standing to challenge the DC law, and he won at every level. And the DC um, trial court and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and by a 5-4 decision in 2008 um, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the court for the first time held that the the Second Amendment gives us an individual right to keep and bear arms. But it has never given us what you ask, which is, what's the standard of review? What what do we mean by that? Who has to prove what in order to to resolve this case? In the case of the First Amendment, I've already told you. um, if it's a free speech case, if it's a a religion case, it's quite likely, especially if there's a content restriction uh, on what's being said or um, propagated, um, that it's going to have to set the government is going to have the burden of satisfying strict scrutiny. The government has to show it has a compelling reason, and that secondly, that it's chosen the least restrictive means. Well, gun rights advocates want the Supreme Court to adopt a similar standard for the Second Amendment. Other people on the other end of the spectrum don't want that. They want a lower level of scrutiny because they feel there is more room for constitutional regulation of firearms. And so that's an ongoing debate. I will simp- I will say that in the how many years is it since that time? Sorry about that. I've got something a uh, timer going off here. Um, the reason, or excuse me, since Heller, and I guess it's been what 12, 12 years now. There have been a number of cases um, that have been litigated over, uh, over gun restrictions, gun regulations, and by and large, the courts have upheld them. Interesting. And yeah, they have. In fact, if you go back to the language of Heller itself, it was penned by Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, who was a very much a gun rights advocate. He specifically wrote, and the, and, the, and the majority agreed, that Heller did not mean the end of reasonable gun regulation. And he gave a few examples. So the closest thing we have to um, a standard of review in a Second Amendment case is that reasonable gun restrictions are going to be upheld. And that seems to be what the courts have done. It would be nice if the Supreme Court could elucidate that a little bit more.
0: Yeah, because it seems that would seem like a rational basis review. And it seems like it's a little bit higher than that, maybe like a hybrid between intermediate scrutiny and, and rational basis.
1: Ian, you're bringing up a whole area that I don't don't want to, we're getting down down on time, so I don't want to bore your listeners, but I will say there's a hierarchy of scrutiny that most government actions are going to be upheld if they're not arbitrary. Um, Some government actions will only be upheld if they meet what you refer to as intermediate scrutiny, which is a higher standard, uh, gender discrimination, for example. And at the very highest level, the most important things to us um, are going to be upheld only if they meet that highest standard of strict scrutiny. I might actually agree with you that effectively what the courts are working out is that there's some sort of intermediate level where on the one hand, yes, people do have a second amendment, right? So we can't take it lightly. On the other hand, guns are dangerous and we can pretty much all agree we don't want bad people to have them. We don't want mentally incompetent people to have them. We don't want children to have them. of course, we'd have to define what's a child and what age. I, I've had guns since I was 11. So, I mean, mm. you know, and other people, especially rural people, that's, that's part of the culture. But my point is we don't want hands in the wrong, excuse me, guns in the wrong hands, however we define that. And so there's room for debate as to what's the appropriate level. And the court has thus far left that debate uh, to the states. Um, So that they can come up with reasonable solutions themselves and gradually the court will, at least through deciding those cases, um, will let us know, you know, what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, what is not reasonable. Well said. Well, I'd love to bring you back for uh,
0: part two and we could discuss uh, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. Those, those two episodes on your podcast, I learned so much and they're so fascinating, Uh, especially
1: Andrew Jackson. I mean, his life story is unreal. He's absolutely a fascinating character, and I would encourage you and all your listeners, uh, if they make it out to Nashville, Tennessee, and there's a lot to do in Nashville, especially if you're a country music fan. Johnny Cashman, uh, All sorts of good stuff. Um, uh, take the trip. It's about, I think, eight miles or 10 miles um, east of downtown Nashville. is a place called the Hermitage, um, and that was Andrew Jackson's uh, plantation and it is there and they will tell you all about him And of course they can also listen to uh, my podcast on the subject. Uh, and I, I agree with you, he's a fascinating guy.
0: Yeah, and also your episode on Thomas Jefferson. That, that was, was hilarious. Uh, that blew my mind.
1: That so. was hilarious. That was a guy <laughs> named Fink, Finkelman um, out of, at that time he was teaching at Al- Albany Law School, Paul Finkelman. Um, and I met him at a conference at Montpelier, at James Madison's home. and it very quickly became apparent that he despised Jefferson. He calls him the creepiest um, person <laughs> in right. all of American history. And I'll tell you what, I was a bit taken aback. Um, but Paul makes a pretty compelling case. Doesn't he, he
0: sure does. Um, absolutely. And so hopefully I can bring you back and we can discuss um, those two presidents. And then I also had some questions on the your episode on the fault lines in the Constitution. That was an interesting episode as well.
1: Sandy Levinson out of the University of Texas and his wife—and forgive me, her first name escapes me—she's an author of children's books. Um, Sandy is a longtime critic of some of the basic provisions in the Constitution. I mean, really basic things like the Electoral College or the existence of the Senate. Um, and he's been harping on those in Law Review articles forever. Yeah. Uh, but they decided that they're going to have a wider audience, and so they drew this uh, children's book, and uh, they did a pretty good job of it, didn't they?
0: Yeah, well, although on the other hand, our founding fathers did something right because, you know, we're still going strong, and I'm still very optimistic about the future of this country.
1: I am so glad because young people like you should be optimistic. Old people like me can be cynical because our time is almost over.
0: Well, I don't feel that young. I've been practicing law now for almost 10 years, so it wears on you.
1: (laughs) I've been out of law school for almost 40 years, so you're a young whippersnapper. Okay, fair enough.
0: Thank you so much for your time. It's always fascinating, and uh, I hope you stay safe and be well.
1: You too, Ian. Thanks for having me. Okay, take care.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, and I thank you so much for listening to Lockdown Law. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting On the basis of information on this podcast, without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney client relationship the views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only not those of their respective employers all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed the content on this posting is provided as is.
1: No representations are made that the content is error free.